Welcome to The Strategist, episode 1083. I'm your host, Annalise Klingbill, and with you, as always, Stephen Carter and Zane Velji. Yay! As always, I've been here, I've been here the whole time. The it's whole the first time they're letting me speak. Yeah, the yeah, whole yeah. time. Is so Zane Velji in special role as guest strategist? This is a big deal, No, guys. he's a full-on strategist. It's not even a guest thing. We're, we've, we've promoted him. He's we never got rid of fucking Hogan. Yeah, is it a big day? We, we know we know I can do both, Carter. I'm a switch hitter. I'm like uh, I'm like the Shohei Otani of this podcast. Does that reference oh, mean anything nice. to you? That's very good, but I don't think that that's How true does that reference do not mean anything to you? Okay, wait, wait, here we go. He could do it all. Okay, there's he been no one like Shohei Otani. Let me tell yeah, you guys. I'm going to take a for a second. Okay, okay, doing both. What is What are the both things that Shohei Otani does, Stephen Carter? He pitches and he bats. Not only does he bat, he hits dinger, he baby. Dinger. He excels. He's unreal. Insane. He is one he of the best up. hitters in baseball, one of the best pitchers in baseball. How is it possible, you say? How could that be? Where's Mike Trout when you need him? Oh, my God. What a mess. Jesus Christ. That's Carter. our Zane Your chat, work. Your chat GPT work is pretty good. I like good, it. Eh? <laughs> Very Not bad. Quick. Not Very bad. Slight. I had enough time to get like that it. all in there. Yeah, that's yeah. good. I like it. Do you know anything else? No, that's uh, that's what my entire know? baseball knowledge. No, that's good. That is that is the most relevant baseball knowledge. Mm-hmm. Back to you, Annalise. Sorry. I, yeah, I, no, it's I, good. Anything else? Old habits die hard. Anything old else die we hard. should know? <laughs> no, nothing. Nothing you should nothing fucking else. know. Okay. I just, uh, you know, it's it's good that Carter can finally take a, a night off. Corey, of course, is not here, uh, which is good. I, I heard this. I heard this has happened once in East Strategist history. One single time, Corey missed. Corey prides episode. himself on being here, but there are moments, and Carter, we can talk about this now. Yeah, um, he doesn't show up. He He's here, but he doesn't in. show up. He phones it yeah. in. It's like he, you know, he answers here. questions that Zane didn't even ask. I've never done that. Yep. You know, like no. he, he doesn't bring the focus that I bring. So this yeah. is he lords over us his Mensa IQ and thinks he can come unprepared, and a real person. A real strategist uh, doesn't have a men's IQ and still shows up unprepared like you and I, Carter. That's, yeah, that's, like what, makes Carter. that's okay. what makes it great. Yeah. That's what makes it great. Yeah. Yeah. That's Perfect. good. Um, Can I just ask you a question, Zane? This is the well, first time you've heard Annalise's live read-in of the show. What, what are your thoughts? What are yeah. your thoughts about the energy not levels? Not good. Yeah. More energy. That, uh, low, that low, not good. Um, yeah. Low, not good. I'm, 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 I'm not interested. Yeah, I'm, I'm um, disappointed like fine. you wouldn't even believe. Consistent yeah, feedback fine. from Carter. More energy. Yeah, that's good. It comes, are you are you also up. disappointed, Carter? Are, um, are we are we going yeah, worse? It's, it's like yeah, the worst. Always. It's the worst thing. Says, okay, you're not yeah, Zane. Zane's so energetic. Be more like. But Zane. I like this. I like this. And at least you're not improving. You're you're sticking in your in your, in your lane. You're like yeah. you're doubling down. That's also another Stephen Carter strategy. So you're you're yeah. kind of learn that rock the hard spot, Carter. Yeah. Be better or double down. And in this case, she's chosen <laughs> the other down. Stephen Carter strategy, which is I'm going to double down with what would yeah. I bring to the table? Okay. Yeah. I like well, that. I respect I can, that even more. I can respect that. Let's do okay. a show. What do you guys Our, think? Let's do it. No, I'm okay. fucking, it was been ready three minutes We've ago. We've got two strategists Carter. here. No Corey Hogan. We're doing it. Do we? Guys, our first segment, our first segment is called The Politics of Sport. Um, some news today. Nike is permanently ending its sponsorship of Hockey Canada. This was a longstanding partnership. It existed for more than 20 years. And ending it comes after Nike had announced a temporary suspension in October. 
um, that came in the wake of Hockey Canada's handling of high-profile sexual assault allegations stemming from an incident in London in 2018. This pause is permanent now. Nike is no longer a sponsor of Hockey Canada, the company said today on Monday. So there's lots to pick apart here, and I want to get into it. I know you both have thoughts. First question, though, good move, bad move? Is this what Nike should have done, Carter? Well, I think so. I think... um it's unfortunate for Nike. I don't think that Nike was looking forward to doing this. I mean, I think that there's sometimes when a uh, sponsorship comes to the end, to an end, when there's an opportunity to. Alpine Canada went through this when they had their drunk, drunk driving incident uh, uh, at one of the Olympics. I can't even remember which Olympics it was. Uh, but, you know, sponsors who I think were wanting to pull out anyways were used that opportunity to, to, quickly, uh, to quickly leave. I'm not sure that this is that. I think that this is... Uh, Nike saying, you know what, um, we've got a brand image that we need to protect and Hockey Canada um, is an NSO, a national sports organization that doesn't seem to live up uh, to its promise. And I think that that's actually shared amongst a, a lot of different uh, national sports organizations, be it hockey or or the soccer federation, which I'm, I'm sure will come up a, a little bit later as we're talking about this. So uh Ter- you know, disappointing move from from Nike, but uh, I think it's totally understandable. Disappointing. Disappointing. Dis- for- yeah, disappointing. How? Disappointing for well, well boy, Jesus, both of you are going to ask me questions. Oh, now? What the fuck? No, seriously. Like, I, 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 I think, think it's disappointing because I think that number that they have a big brand presence in hockey. Uh, they produce uh, a tremendous amount of hockey equipment. This would this is a win win, especially with a number of the tournaments that are are offered, uh, like junior tournaments. And Hockey Canada is a big organization with a big presence. And to lose Nike and for Nike to lose Hockey Canada, I think hurts both parties. I think that that's disappointing. But I think that uh, that's what you get when you can't manage your brand, when you can't protect other brands from who are associated with you. Uh, and it's something Zane, that Canadian sport your- better figure out. Zane, what's your high-level good I, move, bad move? Good move. I agree with elements of what Carter said, except the part of unfortunate. I don't know I don't know where you're coming at with unfortunate. And I also don't think Nike has a brand image to protect. They've got a brand image that they're trying to grow, and they've been very clear about what it is. They're in the position, and they've leaned into this, for better or worse, Carter, progressive politics and progressive representation is what they want. And hockey is too fucking white, man. And hockey is too fucking problematic. (laughs) And you add those two things together uh, alongside the fact that the market share of hockey as a sport has been lagging behind soccer, has been lagging behind basketball, has been lagging behind the, the areas that Nike wants to play in. This is where opportunity meets strategy. They had an opportunity to pause. I bet they were celebrating that day. They had the opportunity to pause. And then when they reassessed, it was not just on the sexual harassment and the ongoing issues with Hockey Canada. It was, does hockey align to us? And frankly, hockey is actually part of the backward slide we've seen in society. Fuck Gary Bettman and his bullshit a couple months ago with trying to ensure that no NHL team can have pride or military appreciation nights prior to. Hockey's sliding backwards to where Nike wants to be. So for better or worse, Nike's evolved as a company from the Michael Jordan company of the 1990s, where he said Republicans also buy shoes, to now leaning into the Colin Kaepernick and to selling to a more Democrat, more blue, more financially 
uh, affluent crowd, and they know that's where growth will come from. Will that ultimately be their downfall, potentially, uh, it, where, where others kind of bastardize their woke or progressive politics? Possibly. But as it relates to the opportunity that they have and the brand strategy and the alignment that they have, I think it's exactly where they want to be. So I don't think it's unfortunate at all, because I think it's a sign that hockey has not done what it needs to do in this country. So there it is. Market conditions, guys. Yeah, I mean, Carter we're, we're agreeing. I just think that it's unfortunate for the kids and, and the athletes. Like, I'm, I come from the athlete side. Is it right? though? I've had a, do- though? I've had a daughter in ski racing. I've got a, you know, the the boyfriend of I'm the daughter sponsored. that's still that's still racing. I see every single day national sports organizations fuck it up on behalf of the athletes. I mean, sure. I I don't take issue with anything that you said about the future of hockey and how hockey has dropped the, (laughs) dropped the ball. See what I did there. Um, I don't take issue with any of that, but there are athletes behind all these decisions. There are young children who, who want to play sports and the vast majority of people who are engaged in things that hockey Canada does are four year olds to 12 year olds that are playing hockey before you even get to the stage where you have to make a team. And I feel sorry for those kids who don't have additional resources because the big kids at, at, at Hockey Canada couldn't figure out uh, how to protect the brand. It's ridiculous. Okay, so strategy-wise, what do the two of you think other top sponsors should do? You know, they have like Esso, Telus, Tim Hortons, who all also paused their sponsorships last summer. Um, do they now follow Nike or do they do what Bauer Hockey did, which is reinstate its partnership? It's kind of a pivotal kind of two paths that you can walk as a brand. Strategy-wise, Zane, what would you recommend other big brands do? I think it depends, right? Like if if you're Hawk, if if you're Nike, for example, you've already laid out a very clear business and frankly brand strategy, right? And 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 Hockey Canada and frankly the sport of hockey was probably not fitting that for a while, which is where my point of opportunity and strategy colliding comes into place. If you're Bauer Hockey, you are literally fucking Bauer Hockey, right? So you're going back to hockey. Unless there is a a new sort of, you know, creation of a new national organization, as there, there was a rumor about that at the time, that Hockey Canada is too toxic. We need Canada hockey. We need something else that replaces it. You know, they would have gone there. That's so so for them to come back, you know, yes, it's going to hurt a bit. But honestly, what, what other choice do they have? It's about hockey at the end of the day. That's where they're at. And Hockey Canada still holds the, holds the most amount of juice as it relates to that. To Carter's earlier point about athlete uh, partner sort of co-collaboration, co-creation and win-win situations. If you're SO, you know, you're looking at and if you're TELUS or if you're some of Tim Hortons to your earlier point, these are Canadian brands. They're not necessarily playing outside of the Canadian sphere. So the the brand uh, sort of alignment for them is very much based on the audiences that they care for, right? We always talk about um, the, the audience that matters to you, right? And, and in this case, the audience is deeply domestic, deeply well-moneyed, uh, and it's about alignment with Canada's national sports. So for them, it's a very different consideration than Nike, which is a, a global behemoth. So I suspect many of them, if not all of them, will go back. You could see something like Telus, which is actually putting a lot of its sort of chips in different categories across the board in different areas. You could see them easily pull back because of the maybe slightly indirect relationship. But I suspect hockey, which is very much considered to be aligned with hockey, uh, with, uh, sorry, TELUS, which is, I'm sorry, Tim Hortons, which is very much aligned with hockey, as well as ESSO, a, a partner aligned with the sport, not even just the nonprofit, um, to come back. So I suspect it's really going to be about where the brand alignment for them is and who the target audiences are at the end of the day. 
Carter, jump in. It looks like you want to say something there. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, uh, there's a couple of things I want to say. I mean, one of the things I want to say is that, yeah, the brand alignment really does matter. But the second piece I want to say is that, you know, to, to Zane's point, you know, there was discussion about whether or not Hockey, Hockey Canada is an organization that should be allowed to, you know, for lack of a better word, continue uh, holding essentially the national charter. Um, the government has a role to play in this. Uh, and and it's, I think it's important that we recognize that the minister responsible for sport, Pascal, um, uh, Pascal Senonge, I think it is, um, has, has really, I think, dropped the ball in not holding Hockey Canada more accountable. Uh, they got another pass. This is a, this is not the first time. This is not the second time. This is not the, and, and I fear this will not be the last time that we're talking about hockey, uh, hockey players in this type of situation. It is, um, almost endemic within the sport to, to see people taken advantage of, to see people who are, um, being used by their national sport association. And I, I would really like to see the minister step up and represent the money that Sport Canada invests in these national sports organizations and say, we demand better. Uh, we demand more. We demand better from our sports organizations. Uh, it's not like we're not going to have a national sports organization. A new organization could have been formed immediately after this happened. Um, if the minister had wanted it to happen. Um, and yeah, I mean, it may have had some of the same problems. It may have had some of the same things, but it would have sent a message to every sports organization. Um, don't fuck up like this. Protect your athletes. That's your only job. Your only job is to protect your athletes. Everything else is secondary. And and from what I've seen from sports organizations that I've been involved in, uh, far too few of them uh, actually protect the athletes. Zane, is that going to make a difference, having the minister say we deserve better? Oh, well, having the minister just say we deserve better will not make a difference. Having the minister say, fuck you, you're done, Hockey Canada, will, right? I mean, at the end of the day, it's really to Carter's point about how much ministerial discretion and how much ministerial sort of authority, the minister and frankly, the prime minister, who also is on record commenting on this issue in the height of its scandal, want to exert on Hockey Canada. And so you saw what Hockey Canada did over the course of the last number of months with their rehabilitation uh, exercise, bringing on consulting firms like Navigator, trying to get a more star-studded board of directors, which you know was part of its governance reform, but was it really, right? Yeah. Um, trying to ensure there was a committee that was formed where they asked uh, former sort of uh, male and female uh, hockey stars or, or products of the Hockey Canada ecosystem to come join. Uh, so their real core desire, Hockey Canada, was survivability, right? They wanted to, and and they, of course, and I think where they nailed it strategically, Carter, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on this if you agree, is I think they, to your point, put the athlete in the center. Whoever gave them the strategic advice to save their ass, it wasn't about their ass. They actually put the athletes and the young kids, to Carter's point, that emotional resident story in the middle of their survivability existential crisis. So that that broader sort of concept of we can't have a gap in the system. If you kill us, what happens, right? What happens over the intervening months? We we would rather have governance reform 
rather than have net new governance from the ground up. Because what happens once again to the kids? Everything they said was about the kids, was about that emotional story, was about that cold February afternoon or morning that parents would get up and have their four or five-year-old go and play hockey. That is who would suffer. So as part of their ongoing sort of sales pitch to ensure that they stayed around, they made a compelling enough sales pitch to the minister that that this gap that existed could not be filled um, with something that was net new, that this conversation uh, around um, governance should be one of reform and not one of net new governance principles embedded into an organization, which would take many years to actually refine and, and find a, a, a sort of standalone culture. And I think the minister bought it. But at the end of the day, Carter's right. If the government wanted to take control on this file, they could have. And there's solutions to all the issues that that I've brought up here. Um, but they've decided that Hockey Canada is its vehicle, and 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 we'll see where where it ends up going. Because if they continue to drop sponsors, I can tell you the government is going to uh, potentially have to not just be forced to. And this is a government that's been pretty lethargic on many issues. Have to decide uh, around where the license goes to or the charter goes to Carter's point. Carter, just to pick apart one thing Zane was saying there, do you agree with that that narrative that the there was the emotional hook? They told a story and it worked in terms of strategy. I think so. I mean, I I didn't. I didn't find their argument particularly compelling. I wasn't like, I wasn't wowed by the crisis response that came uh, from, you know, Hockey Canada at the time. And I'm cer- I'm certainly not wowed by their response to this point, right? Like it feels like there's still response required. And instead what we're getting is, uh, you know, silence um because that's that's at the end of the day silence is what sporting federations are best at um we do our own business and if we lose uh callie humphreys to the american uh bobsled team who gives a fuck because ah we're here anyways haha <laughs> suckers um you know i i we've got young friends that are are leaving the the luge team this year because their national federations are gong show and a joke um you know point me in the direction of a good national governing body and uh one that protects and, and grows the athletes i mean you can't talk about soccer that way we can't talk about hockey that way we can't talk about luge bobsled uh skiing um you know i think maybe nordic nordic seems to be pretty good uh, so if you want, put your kids in Nordic. That seems to be the way to go. But, you know, everything else seems to be an absolute and complete shit show. There are some truths here, right, Carter, on like even a human element, I would say, that people like people who accept their faults. People yeah. like people who are three-dimensional, yeah. right? People like, you know, if, if you are self-aware enough to know that you're working on something – that's a personality fault. That's something that you're, you're like, I need to grow here. People, that's endearing. And I think perhaps where you and I may disagree is that I think Hockey Canada did that well. Now, did they do it well to survive all of the sponsors perhaps not coming back? We don't know yet. But, you know, they've sold, and this is what many stakeholders do and many organizations do to government, that, listen, we're not perfect, which is endearing, but we are progress. Right. We are we are not perfect, but we're going to keep things going. Right. And so to your earlier point about bobsleigh to, to, to ski cross so all these other sports, right, that yeah. you have much more intimate and personal knowledge on their advocacy to government is very much about we we move things directionally correct. And yes, there are things under the hood that need to be worked on and sometimes things on the surface that we need to rectify. But getting rid of us, you know, rooting us out. Um, that's not the answer. 
And I think they've made that case well in certain in, in certain markets, and to, especially to governments who have really, Carter, over the history of the last 25, 30 years, not necessarily laid a finger on many of these organizations. Carter, have they made that case well? Well, I think that the problem is that government has just decided not to be a part of it, right? Like, it, it's kind of like arts organizations, right? Like, so when I, I was in the arts early in my career, and and in arts organizations, there was something we called the status quo funding model. And the status quo funding yeah. model is what government put together that enabled, um, you know, we would have, you know, a bunch of new theater companies coming in that were selling as many tickets or, or half as many or 50% as many tickets as Theater Calgary. Um, but there would, we would, you know, Theater Calgary would still get their big grant because it was Theater Calgary and they'd been around for a long time, but they weren't producing the, the interesting theater, the thing that, that, that was drawing the real audiences that was, that was pushing the envelope. Instead, you know, those theater companies were being starved, right? Like DJD is a very popular, no, it's been established here for a hundred million years now, but back when it was coming of age, it was so, it was unique. It was different. It was employing a different type of professional artist and getting its funding model put in place. Um, you know, like the people who did that were doing God's work because it was so hard to do. Um, because we had a status quo funding model. Well, the government of Canada has created essentially a status quo funding model for sport that is empowering and enabling bad fiscal management and bad management for athletes. Um, and it hasn't been looked at since we created the own the own the podium program a gajillion years ago, trying to put people on as though the ultimate end of all sport, the ultimate end of all sport is simply to put people on a podium um, at the end of the day so the Canadians can sing the national anthem. And I will recognize that that's an important part, but it's not the only thing that matters. Zane, hop in there. I feel like, you know, when Carter mentions on the podium, there is there there's almost an emotional resonance that comes with that phrase. And I think that is one of the last times that we've had the emotion of sports enter the NSO or the sports recognition policy that the government has jurisdiction over, right? Because it is an emotional story that was told about on the podium, whether you strategically agree with it or not. The fact that it was about pride, mm -hmm. the fact that it was about success, the fact that it was about pure merit. At, and, you know, at, at any cost, frankly, justified the cost, frankly, justified the government intervention, frankly, justified uh, the legislation, the regulation that came with it to allow it. Right. And I'm not saying the government needs to get back to sloganeering, but there is a case to be made that if you want reform in this area, whether you are one of the, if I can call it Carter, startup aspiring NSOs, right, because this has a very incumbent advantage. Yeah. As long as you're not fucking up, as long as you can show progress and you're not perfect, you're not fucking up, we're not going to revoke your, you know, uh, your license from you. We're not going to revoke your overall sort of governance of specific sports. And I think for those who may want to enter this market, who may want to reform it, who may want to shake it up a bit, I think it's really about that emotional story that they can sell to government, that government can sell to the people so that they can justify their participation. Because at the end of the day, Carter, the sports ministry, if they can just fucking do their thing, right? If things can go humming along directionally correct with very few benchmarks about what success looks like, that's fine to them. But I think it's really about selling them an emotional story that they can sell back to the Canadian public that would allow them and give them the runway and the rope to, to uh, legislate and regulate ultimately. Yeah. I mean, it's a complex issue, Annalise. We'll have it solved in the, by the next uh, 
by the next podcast, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, we've got strategist Zane. He's he's good at this. Strategist Zane, I wouldn't would ask today. Let me yeah. let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. Uh, abolish the sports ministry. What a fucking waste of everyone's time. That's what I really feel. How, okay, why would you take away? Fucking, why would you take away George Chahal's ministry? He's gonna get it. You know he's gonna get it in the shuffle. That that's you know he's gonna get it. Go. You're taking it away I, from I, him. You're taking it away. Personal personal apology to George, uh, whose yeah. ministry has been stolen by another Stephen Carter prediction. I'm really sorry, George. <laughs> you can reach out to Stephen directly at, uh, what's your number, 403? Oh, he's got it. Oh, he's got it. <laughs> You're going to have to change it. Please yeah. change it after this. What about uh, um, the cabinet shuffle? You, and Carter, you mentioned it, other sports news. World Cup, uh, Women's World Cup kicks off later this week in Australia and New Zealand. Yep. And it's been in the news um, in recent months, not just Canada's now national team but several about this equal pay issue mm-hmm. um i guess going into going into the world cup having this kind of still in the conversation thoughts there strategy there on what the governing body should do you know it's interesting i'm glad you brought up that it's happening across multiple nso's so it's not just canada that's having issues with our national teams it's other uh national sports organizations and and when you're watching the uh the world cup previews what you get is essentially um, this team is, is in tumult. This team is in tumult. This team is in tumult. And it doesn't really matter which, uh, which group you're looking at, which, which, uh, stars you're looking to support. Um, th- this has been a very tumultuous period. Now I remember I've been watching women's soccer since I think it was Christine Sinclair's first junior tournament, uh, that was broadcast on TSN. yourself and it was again a- and again tonight, Carter. I'm fucking ancient, um, but it was a fantastic, um, it was fantastic sport. Uh, the Canadians did very well. It was, it was very emotional. It was fantastic. It was everything you could hope for, from, for sport and the national federation sold those rights. I would suspect for very little. Now that was, I think it was 25, 26 years ago. I mean, Christine Sinclair has been in the sport forever. Um, and she's been the best in the sport forever. But she, there's never been enough support for her, for what, you know, she's the cutting edge. And we're not seeing that yep. shift to support women's sport. Forget about women's, uh, specifically women's uh, soccer for a second. Women's sport has not shifted to get the support that it requires. Um, I mean, I, I've watched again and again and again and again, federation after federation, that is unable to shift from the model that there is a second tier group and that second tier group is the the women's side women's soccer specifically is selling out across the country um it's selling out uh, around the world there are there are professional leagues and professional teams in places that uh people didn't even dream of having professional sports and now this thing has taken off and the last people to survive the last groups to recognize that it's taking off are the national sports organizations themselves that are doing the deals that are getting the broadcast rights that are getting the money and they are not they, they're passing the money to themselves they're not passing the money to the athletes so so what's the strategy like how do you how do you shift that and i guess on that note um there are there are teams trying to turn up the pressure on social media um there i think it was the france team had like an ad this week kind of like our give equals give players equal pay sort of thing how how do you shift it how do you turn up that pressure and have that shift 
Uh, I mean, the way I, I the way I think of it at this stage is that it's like any labor movement, and the labor side, the side that is the, uh, you know, I would love to see uh, some actual sit downs from the from the teams. The problem is that these young women are, that have worked so hard their whole lives to achieve. Um, making the World Cup team and to, and to be a part of this World Cup, they shouldn't be asked to sit down and stand apart just because their federations are failing. We should be able to put that pressure on their federations for them. And uh, I'm hopeful that this World Cup, through this, the enormous success that I'm already anticipating that it's going to be, uh, is able to put pre- pressure on federations around the world to change the way that they're looking at not just soccer but women's sport and uh, women's sport in general. Um, skiing, for example, has uh, purses that are identical for male and female competitors. It's been that way in tennis for a very long time. This is not a mm-hmm. this is not a model that is has never been heard of and, and is is just going to financially cripple organizations. Um, this is a model that's been in place for quite some time in a lot of different places. And it's just a simple matter of the sporting federations making the decision. Zane, what's your take? What, what's the strategy on how you raise, raise public interest in, um, in equal pay? I I like where Carter started here. Actually, I think the labor movement is, is a good comparator because, um, because of the the preconditions of of what the labor movement brings, which is a network effect of you talking to your friends about something you care about, that has been the root of the labor movement a hundred plus years. Right? It, it's it's not been a large advertising heavy. It's not been a large sort of broadcast heavy. It's been a this is important because this is fundamental, and this is fundamental because it's about livelihoods. And I think what we need to do, is, if I expand on, on, a, on a strategy, uh, and there's a lot of proof points to this, and let me kind of maybe list a few of those, at least that are t- at top of my mind that I wrote out here. And Carter's hit on a few of them, right? The equal effort and dedication to men, I think is a huge one, right? So whatever bullshit argument people want to make about the WNBA and the NBA, which I know is a lot of butt of the jokes in the sporting world, being like, ah, oh, they can't sell out even one-fifth of an arena. That bullshit, I think, needs to be parked aside because equal effort and dedication. You also have this role model inspiration piece, which Carter hit on yeah. with Christine Sinclair. All you know, all respect to my homie Alfonso Davies, who I do not know, but Albert known, right? Yeah. Like Christine Sinclair is the best fucking soccer player that's ever set mm-hmm. foot and put on a Canada jersey. Like, no doubt, right? And the best women's soccer player ever. So you have this role model aspect. And yes, rooted in this is like this fairness and equity and this, but there's an economic impact upside here. There's a role model inspiration. There's just a social progress element to it. And I think what you have to do at the end of the day is you have to use soccer as your, your sort of lightning rod. You have to use soccer as the beginning of it. And I think beyond the, the, the friend-to-friend contact, the sort of broader equity argument has to be this conversation that if we can do it for soccer, we can do it for anything else, sporting and, and otherwise. And I think that's really exciting to me, is the argument to say we are actually using soccer not just as a, in the bounds of a sporting conversation so that athletes in other jurisdictions and other sports can achieve equal pay. Soccer, as demonstrated by the Canadian national women's team, which are the best in the world, right? Best in the world, best at what they do, do not receive equal pay. This needs to be the tip of the spear. And it's popular. It's easy to access. It has those role models. I think this is a conversation point. And then what you do is you attract people to any on-ramp 
whether it's you know whether they're they're sport related or not. But it's, it's, it's the labor movement does this really well in certain jurisdictions. They expand the scope so much that they allow multiple entry points into a campaign that you don't necessarily have to know that educational assistant that is going to be helped out in a particular jurisdiction or a particular province. We need to do that with the sports movement and in fact allow people who may be not be soccer related or even soccer adjacent or even sports adjacent to see themselves, to see their daughters, to see their future in this sort of movement. So I would say take the whole spectrum. Don't just restrict it, expand it because that's what tent building uh, looks like and you allow people to to what car- campaigns Carter has built in the past to feed their own words and their own language around why they care about something. This is not scripted. This is about a broader sort of fight and soccer is now in the zeitgeist tip of the spear helps you make the case. I would start there. Create your ambition big rather than narrow. You might think it's 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 a failed strategy to begin with because of that wide-scale ambition. I think it's actually the start of something because it expands beyond one particular federation, so to speak. Is that a good strategy, Carter? Look at Zane taking notes, having proof points. Look at this. I, prepared. I'm a little disappointed, actually, because now I'm going to have to start taking notes. Um, but I think that the... I think that he's right. And I also think I'm going to return to uh, uh, the Minister of St. Ange because this is another opportunity for federal leadership that I think would be, um, I think it would be a mistake for the federal government not to weigh in in some fashion to remind Soccer Canada that that a significant amount of funding, uh, especially for big, large-scale events, comes from the federal government when it comes to these these sports. And the federal government should be putting in a metric that says, next time we get a, a request for funding, we're going to be looking at the equal pay, equal performance issue oh, I love that. Um, across I love the that. board, because it's an easy metric to add. It's not like it's going to be difficult to, to, to evaluate. I mean, yeah, there's probably some questions when we say equal, equal pay, is it equal pay for equal effort? Or is it, for example, an equal percentage of the box office or an equal, you know, like there's, there's multiple ways to measure equal, but Right now, the measures that we have are completely um, off track with what the opportunity is to start valuing the efforts and the performance. I, I just I'd be remiss not to mention that there was a the French ad that I saw this week where they took images of the men's national team and overlaid yeah, the, one I saw the women's national team, and they. Made you know like you were cheering for you know this the French male team and you were like yes you're doing great this is spectacular and then you realize in fact it was the women's national team that were making all of these and I I, I don't understand soccer but to me they looked like spectacular plays uh, that were exciting and energizing and everything you could hope for from watching soccer um, or football whatever words we're gonna use. Uh, and I thought it was a great ad to showcase that the women's game um, is spectacular on it, in, uh, on its own level. Um, it, it, just an amazing sport. And it, it came from a telecom company, did it not? The ad you're talking I about? I, I, I don't know. I All I know is I found it online or I don't know. I mean, it's been sent around to everybody, I'm sure. And... I just immediately, I didn't get it at first. I watched it kind of halfway through. And I'm like, why is someone recommending that I watch a men's 
had when, you know, this is about the Women's World Cup. And when you kind of click on it and you see the whole thing unfold, I mean, it was very, very powerful. You know, I, I'll just maybe add one point, and I, I think Carter hits on something really important. I love your idea, Carter, of of that equal pay clause and any sort of government funding or, or sports support that the federal government or the minister in particular would, would green light on. And I think to my earlier point around, you know, plugging into existing movements about equal pay, rather than having to kind of set up a net new movement, use soccer as kind of like a uh, a, a proof point or something in the zeitgeist to, to galvanize people around. What something like that does, that idea that Carter put on the table, is it allows the minister to pick their own on-ramp. We know governments have, as talking about on-ramps earlier, we know governments have varying and often changing um, reasons for doing something. So to give them, you know, the positive health and social outcomes on-ramp, to give them the public support and expectations on-ramp, to give them the, the even the moral obligation or the economic impact or the fair recognition of effort, as we talked about, or just frankly, this clear social justice and equality. If you give them all these opportunities, the chances that one of them will be the one that they, they walk on, depending on the mood of the government, the priority of the government, what they feel is symbolically important, as we know is in this government's sort of key sort of strategy, but also failure is, is symbolism. You give them these opportunities and you give them these on-ramps to kind of jump in and take action on this fight. And I think one thing that organizations often fail to do, uh, especially those that are advocating, is that they don't give enough on-ramps to government because they want their specific one to be the right one. So they have a moral clarity as a stakeholder be like, you have to do it because of social justice reasons or equity reasons. Yeah. And if they don't walk, if the government doesn't walk up that ramp, they kind of say, mm-hmm. well, fuck you. Like, that's the only reason to do it. And I'd say that's wrong in this case, right? You have to give them several opportunities to get to the conclusion. And who gives a flying fuck which one they ultimately take? You just want the thing done. And I think that's where Carter's proposition provides several opportunities for government should they there be a desire to take action. What about maybe the last question here when it comes to strategy is that storytelling piece, that emotion, that narrative, that hook. What, walk me through it. Well, I think that the hook is going to be that this is going to be probably the most watched Women's World Cup in history. Um, and the Canadian team is really good. And the emotional hook of, of this moment at this time is that it's most likely Christine Sinclair's last last hurrah it is uh, a team that is super strong with a coach that's really interesting um you know her strength and her her leadership is uh kind of second to none i think and so you've got this cast of characters and you'll recall annalise we talked about characters a lot during the last election right you have to have a story you have to have characters and these characters are so strong that you would be almost nuts not to uh, take advantage of this character set. And that's why I'm so baffled by, you know, Soccer Canada. I mean, Soccer Canada has the opportunity to really jump into these characters, own these characters, define these characters. I mean, I remember when when I mentioned that drunk driving incident in, uh, I think it was the Seoul Olympics, Um that uh canada experienced they pulled the two women's ski cross won gold and silver and they pulled them out of a press conference they cost those young women hundreds of thousands of dollars in endorsements because one of their coaches got drunk and drove a van that is that's the exact opposite of how to do crisis management this is what you know this found this this federation should be grabbing onto these these 
wonderful characters and telling some spectacular stories um, as this all uh, all unfolds. Uh, you know, Car- Carter's hit on something interesting when he talks about this through characters, right? This is about finding the protagonists. And and you have protagonists in this story. There is plural, right? And then you have the biggest protagonist in this story, which I think is the country, yeah. right? In the fucking frozen tundra, mm-hmm. we dominate a fucking sport that was so foreign to us, right? That is dominated by the global south. That is dominated by Europe. It's a religion there. And we just casually said, fuck you. We're just going to dominate your religion. We're just going to take over. We're just going to be the best in the world at this thing. The reason, and this speaks to the broader immigration story. Mm -hmm. This speaks to the broader development story. This speaks to overcoming gender stereotypes. This speaks to overcoming a country stereotypes. This speaks to empowering future generations. We just decided that we wanted to put our mind to something and that these women, in fact, not we, these women wanted to put their mind to something and they just fucking did it. They just decided they wanted to dominate something. Role models, achievements, breaking barriers, support and solidarity, national identity and pride, right? All of these things are tied together when you kind of take the underdog story that so casually ended up being the most dominant force in the sport. And I think that is that extension of that to me is such a poetic, such an interesting, such an emotionally resonant opportunity to talk about what else could we put our mind to? I know we're, we're limiting the scope here to soccer, right? But I, when I think about this as the broader conversation of equal pay, it is that sort of story that I think is very much in our Canadian ethos, right? Where we don't kind of feel confident about ourselves until we're recognized elsewhere. Well, fucking look right here. We just kill at this thing. Um, and, and I, and I think it's really, really powerful. We kind of lean into some of the, the narrative threads, uh, you know, that Carter put on the table and, and maybe some of the ones that I did as well. It's a good story, Zane. Let's leave it there and move on to another topic. Mandates. Guys, last week, Stampede Week, several- Vaccine mandates, Carter. We're doing it. Several <laughs> mandate letters for Daniel Smith's new ministers were released um, by by Daniel Smith. Another was released today, so I think we're up to six or seven mandate letters now. I want to talk to you, pick your brains. Do mandate letters matter? Is this just like an exercise that you do for media and stakeholders? Do, do they actually matter? Carter, what's your take on mandate letters? Oh, I think they really matter because there's uh, almost an infinite number of things that you can do within any ministry. And by, you have to put some parameters on them. Now, in a, in a perfect sense, what would be happening with the mandate letters is that the the ministers would get the mandate letters and then they would be able to go and solve the problems on their own. We've talked about kind of the, the first minister's problems where the first ministers are, you know, or the, uh, take over and don't allow their... Um, their ministers to have autonomy. Uh, this is the opportunity to allow autonomy. Do these things. These are the things that we're hoping you will achieve um, through your mission. And you don't have to come back and ask permission to solve these problems. Go just solve these problems. And as as a government, we will be happy and satisfied that you did so. Um, so I think that there's a real value in that. And I also think that there's a real value to the stakeholders in that, you know, we said in this, in this mandate letter, this is what's going to happen. And now this is what's going to happen, right? And, and you can hold this to account. You, and if, you're to not, if it's not in the mandate letter, then get the fuck out of here. We don't need, you know, don't tell me how important this is. I've got a mandate letter that tells me what's actually important. So I like mandate letters. I think that they are a great way to establish 
direction, uh, to establish priorities, and to communicate to stakeholder groups, this is what matters to us. So, yeah, I like them. Zane, do you like Mandy letters? I I do. I struggle with them a bit more because I feel like the ones that we receive are truncated. They're more of a laundry list. Uh, they're filled with vagaries uh, in certain cases. This sort of like like specific but vague. No timelines. No specific outcomes. Occasionally, which stakeholders you have to work with. But I, I, I actually I have to park most of that aside and agree with Carter because I think they actually are a multi-purpose tool. I think that when they were originally designed, and, and these haven't been around for a very long time, no, we think yeah. of this as an ancient practice, right? Like you could even look back to the Harper era government, and they really didn't have public mandate letters. I'm sure that the PMO and 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 especially the Prime Minister himself had direction, iterative and specific. You know, your one go at your next three years or two years at a ministry. Uh, you know, uh, sir or madam, but like at the end of the day, this has really been, uh, a, and I shouldn't say Trudeau invention, but something popularized by the Trudeau government, this publicly accessible mandate letter. And I think to Carter's point around stakeholders, we've gotten very used to it as stake, one of the stakeholders of these mandate letters, I would say the broader sort of media, the podcast class, the blogger class, right? We are one of the folks that Strategy. picks them apart. They well, they and, and they create their own media narratives, right? Like you'll see journalists pick apart these mandate letters. They will go to stakeholders to be like, what do you think of this? And that will create a new story, right? I like this. I don't like this. You know, and, and, and as every single important one comes out, it, I like this. I don't like this. But to my earlier point, they've become this multi-pronged tool. They've always, you know, since they've existed, been toward Carter's point about direction, accountability, guardrails, right? Do shit in this box, right? Don't fuck around. Your name of your ministry is very broad. I'm narrowing it for you, right, minister? So go do these 12 things, right? You get to decide on the order. Maybe you don't because I've given you a more detailed or mandate letter that is not publicly visible with timelines and KPIs and goals and you're going to fucking execute on. But you're staying in these guardrails, to Carter's point, right? Coordination. One of the things that we see in mandate letters increasingly more so, and these this was not the case in early mandate letters, but more so you work with this person to get this thing done. Right. And we mm -hmm. see that even in the Daniel Smith letters. But even more so these days, I find these mandate letters allow like to be a multi pronged tool in some ways. Right. You're able to Carter's point, uh, talk to stakeholders. And one of the things that I love that the Trudeau government has done, and I don't see it as much in the Daniel Smith mandate letters, and we can talk about this, is they outline specific stakeholders, which is really, really interesting, not just like work with industry, but like work with the association of welders work yeah. with this particular uh, stakeholder. And I think that's actually quite smart because Carter, you and I have talked about this in the past, right? The best way to write a, a best-selling political memoir is you mention everyone's name that you've ever encountered. So they go mm -hmm. to the index and they try to find their name in it. And I look at mandate letters similarly. If you can mention these stakeholders, if you can put their names in them, you know, ensuring you don't commit the error of omission, but expand that scope rather than make it more vague, it allows those folks that are potentially going to be enemies to maybe even momentarily be allies 
to say, okay, well, I've actually been called out as someone who's going to work with them. So let's wait and see. Maybe the minister has a conversation with me. Maybe there is possibility here. So beyond just accountability and direction and guardrails, they also allow this ability to have kind of stakeholder influence. It allows this ability to even manage your ministers a bit more, make them publicly accountable, use the public accountability mechanism in a way so that you can kind of keep cabinet control and implementation of policy. So I put aside the vagaries, I put aside the lack of timelines and the specific outcomes. And I say, I still like them despite all that because of the reasons I mentioned, the reasons Carter mentioned. Good, uh, good summary there, Zane. Before we pick apart some of the things you mentioned, Carter, can you pull back the curtain at all on mandate letters, like in terms of how they're created or who creates them? Is it actually the the premier's office saying, here's what matters? Or do the ministers have input in it? Is the first time the ministers see it when everyone sees it? Like, can you, before we kind of pick apart some of Zane's specific points, can you pull back the curtain a little? They're made by the premier's office. We, when I wrote, I I think I wrote most of the, I mean, you have area specific uh, specialists and then you work a little bit with the public service to get the information that you require to put into the, uh, into the letters. Um, But I recall we wrote them uh, within the, within the premier's office. Um, We had the pen and um, we would sometimes consult with the minister, you know, this is where we're going. This is what we're thinking. And other times we just tell the minister, this is what your mandate letter looks like. Um, this was part of our control structure. These are the things we want you to do. Go do those things. I think to, to Zane's point, we certainly didn't have as much, uh, specificity as we could have. Um, you know, there wasn't necessarily dates where we expected certain things by, that was a weakness, but we were also, you know, you were writing a lot of things into one letter. Uh, you know, you're basically writing your entire government's future into a series of letters that you're creating. And one of the things I like about what Danielle Smith is doing is that she's releasing them slowly. We did all of ours on one day. I mean, that was a big lift. Uh, just to get, just to be prepared enough to write all those letters was a big lift. Uh, I think that this may be maybe more collaborative than the the ones that we were doing just based on how it appears to be being done. Oh, you you think they're not all done. It's kind of they're being released as they get I think they're being finished. released slowly. Yeah, I think that uh I think that I can't imagine a scenario where you're going to be a minister and not have a mandate letter. I just think that that would be it'd be yeah, really so, tough. So so let's talk about that the Let's talk about the release strategy, and it ties into Zane's point about the media. Is like last week with Stampede Week, traditionally a slow week for getting coverage of things outside of Stampede. And I think yeah. four or five of them were released. Um, and then the way the government's doing it is like they're putting out a press release, kind of summarizing the mandate letter and then including an attachment to the mandate letter that, that's two or three pages. Good. And, and as I say, doing kind of the slow trickle of them. Good strategy. I think that the strategy of releasing, especially the finance minister's uh, mandate letter, was really important. Uh, I think that there were some things in there, uh, specifically around, um, you know, the Alberta pension plan and the uh, picking, you know, collecting our own taxes that are incredibly not fiscally responsible and incredibly unpopular. Um, Why, you know, we, we, this, it's a big fucking deal if, if the, 
province was to go down these directions and there is no mandate for it. I mean, I, I, you know, oh yes, you won the election, Danielle. Good for you, but you did not get a mandate on this. Um, anyways, I, I'm, I'm fascinated to see that the, that that was one of the ones that was kind of, I don't want to say rushed out the door, but I, I will say it was put out more strategically at a time when people aren't going to be paying quite as much attention. I mean, the whole summer, people aren't going to be paying very much attention. But uh, Stampede, as you mentioned, is the lowest of the lows. Zane, do you think the trickle works? Or does it mean that, it, you know, rather than put 20 out in one day and journalists have to go through all of them and pick the most exciting, it gives each day that it comes out, there's a new story about it. You know, it's interesting. It, it, it depends on the core question, whether they want to really have coverage and engagement about these, or they're trying to hide them, right? And so we always think of the more cynical, like, hey, you're fucking burying these things, right? Like, you don't want anyone to pick it apart, because y- here's the thing, right? If, if, if you could put it in a, in a letter, uh, and if no one uh, picks apart, or no one finds necessarily what it means, or it's so specifically vague, or perfectly vague, in an artist sort of way, that people can't really discern what you're saying, but you said it, well, it gives you license to do it. That's your mandate, right? Like, we trial ballooned it, no one picked it up, and fucking now we can do this thing. And and to Carter's point, right, like perhaps releasing the finance minister's um, two big uh, sort of points around the income tax collection as well as the uh, the domestic sort of or the provincial uh, pension plan uh, during the height of stampede, probably strategic to bury, least amount of coverage. Um, but the other way to look at it for them is, you know, listen, they want to put these out there. They know that the media is not necessarily going to you know, um, beef up over the summer in any meaningful way. It's still going to be a thin media that, that's going to be distracted over the, of the dog days of summer. Let's just get them out when they're ready. Let's not worry too much about it. We're not necessarily gaining press from this thing. We care about our, this is a stakeholder exercise. So what we're ultimately doing is punting these over to stakeholders who've approached us or that we want to appease or frankly still want some of their money filtered back to the party to ensure that they understand that we are on their side and and their agenda item is our agenda item. They're probably using that sort of strategy, more decentralized sort of strategy. So for them, I think it's really about, hey, listen, let's just get these things out when they're done. Let's not think too much about the media cycle. And you're seeing that more and more. You know, this, this concept of media relations a lot of political parties uh, and frankly governments frankly don't give a shit anymore and i know this government from some of the things i've heard is part of that cohort they're like who gives a flying fuck what what the media covers it's summer it's not like they're growing over the course of the next number of days so what well they'll 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 have to choose between 12 they'll have to choose between 6 we don't care right all we want is license to do our shit and i think that's that's the very simplistic and perhaps most optimal strategy that they're currently using carter do you have something to say there no zane they, zane uh zane's i nailed it yeah and you know what great no one more surprised than me no one i mean yeah well of course you, you've Corey always was like always, this you, show's gonna bomb and i'm like i don't know i think bomb might be too high like zane on every episode and oh, boom i wish, I wish was here to great. tell you how stupid that point is i wish cory was here to tell you <laughs> what about yeah, um was- carter what about the specific stakeholders the the naming of do you do you like that idea of naming very specific stakeholder associations and groups. I mean, I I think it was especially effective on the environmental file where uh, the stakeholders that were listed constrained the actual, um, you know, who we give a fuck about. Uh, And that constraint 
Um, you know, if, if you know, I, I don't know that I'm calling myself an environmentalist, but I'm certainly far more concerned about global warming and uh, climate change. You than like this the environment? Government is. You like mountain biking? I, I mountain bike. I, you know, they're going to clear cut my mountain biking uh, facility. They're you going crash to... when you mountain bike. Okay, it's really sore and it's getting more this sore. Is part of the show where along. I can. Okay, this is part of the show that I'm going to tune out. Okay, keep going. Yeah, I've really hurt myself, and no one seems to care. Heather's reaction was, "Well, ancient. you wouldn't hurt yourself if you weren't so stupid." So that was hurtful. Um, probably true. Anyways, continuing on my point. Um, no reaction from either of us. <laughs> that mandate letter was mandate uh, letters, Carter. <laughs> the, the the mandate letters that constrain the number of stakeholders to talk to frustrate the hell out of me. But as a pr- practitioner, you have to respect it because uh, it makes it so much easier for the government to say, "Yeah, we never said that we were going to get impact." You know feedback from everybody we told people that we had clear priorities we reached out to those clear priorities now fuck off i i agree you know with this just to add on this point when you can use specific or deliberately vague terms right which is an art which is an art in communications as the three of us know right Mm -hmm. that it feels like there's a lot on the bone but when you look at it oh there's many outs for them there's a oh it, it did it say accomplish or did it say collaborate Oh, it said collaborate. Well, I guess, okay, well, progress in that sense is actually totally subjective. Excellent. So if you could keep, from a pure practitioner's perspective, if you can have this, it feels dense, but it's actually light feeling to your language, which they have actually successfully done. And I, and I feel like this has become a, a bit of an art in mandate letters. And then pepper on stakeholders that are specific, make those specific and the actual KPIs vague. That allows you to get that sort of feeling of we're actually trying to turn friends into enemies. And one of the things I've loved that governments in the past have done that I would really advocate for around mandate letters is the strange bedfellows technique. Put on, let's say, a housing ministry. And I know this government doesn't have one. But on the housing ministry, put, you know, an association of construction hmm. uh, professionals along or builders, right, alongside the charitable housing uh, groups together, right? Put them in the same mandate letter, put them side by side, show that you're expanding your scope rather than reducing it or narrowing it. And that collaboration could very much just be a conversation or two. But once again, you've named someone, it's a huge GR government win. It helps you back on the party dollar side. Let's not forget about that. That's what fucking fuels these campaigns going forward. So if I'm named, I'm look like a friend, that's helpful, mm-hmm. even on an individual basis. Even these corporations can't donate on an individual basis. Yeah, these execs will probably attend the premier's next lunch or dinner or, or fundraising event. All that shit adds up, and it matters when you when people can feel like friends rather than enemies. And I think mandate letters, more so than they have historically, allow government that latitude, and they allow the government that latitude by naming folks specifically. L- lastly, what what about the what next? Like, there's those media stories and the interest and stakeholders take note when these come out. But is there follow-up? Is there like a report card on, hey, you're doing the things in your mandate letter or you're not? How does that feed into cabinet shuffles? Like, do you want to kind of speak about the what happens over the next four years? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, you refer back to the mandate letter as you're going through things. And and one of the things that I used to do is when the minister would come to me with, with the various complaints about various issues, I'd say, is that a part of your mandate letter? And they'd say, no, it's not part of my mandate letter, but this group tells me that it's very, very important. Now, sometimes, you know what? It is very important. We need to change and we need to recognize and, and bring that in. And, and 
the business of government is sometimes very complex and uh, you don't always get what you want. Um, but, you know, this is the, you know, the, the mandate letter allows you to say to that minister that's coming around and saying this is so important and, and if we don't do this, we're going to, we're going to lose this community, we're going to lose that community, we're going to, you know, we're not going to be able to, to, you know, to achieve these things. Well, it wasn't in your mandate letter. And if, because it's not in your mandate letter, I just don't think that we can make it a priority right now. So you're going to have to put that to the side of the desk and you're going to have to focus on the things that we agreed as a government that we were going to do. And, you know, it, it, I'm sorry that this thing that you think is important isn't a part of that, but, you know, that's the way it's going to go. And then the other thing uh, that we would do is we would do performance reviews with the ministers. Now, some of them, like Rachel Notley had a no shuffle kind of policy, but most governments have a shuffle policy. And if you're not doing your job, mm -hmm. you're going to get moved. And I think that that is a far stronger way of governing because ultimately it holds people to account and it provides outcomes for the people that matter, which is the citizens that were voting for us. So, you know, I, I think that the mandate letter uh, and using it as a scorecard is a super valuable uh, technique that should be uh, that should be more in in more utilized by by governments as as they can. What was that? No, I, 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 just one side thing there. The no shuffle policy was that a reflection of the fact that there wasn't a lot of qualified talent to shuffle, or why why was that? You can shuffle people, but you can take the exact same crew and move them around. It doesn't have to be. There's a brand new group of people who are now doing a brand new job. Um, but Rachel Notley, for whatever reason, uh, I don't know if she thought that shuffling people was some sort of admission of failure or whatever, um, but she never shuffled anybody. And that, that, that stopped her from being able to say, you know, like the next minister comes in and says, you know what, the minister that was before me had the wrong idea about a few things. So now you have to own all your mistakes. And God knows every government makes a lot of mistakes all the way through uh, to the bitter end because you didn't want to move anybody from any portfolio. And it's just a silly strategy. It was one of the, it, she's the only first minister I can think of that's ever employed a no shuffle strategy. Zane, jump in. You were going to say something before I asked. Well, I, I was going to jump in on, on kind of this, this using mandate letters as a report card. I, I agree with Carter around the public accountability aspect of it, right? And, and I think mandate letters really depend on the minister, right? As certain ministers, you have, you give them longer rope. The mandate letter is directionally correct. You fill in the gaps, right? And let's be clear about one thing. The mandate letter that is publicly provided to us is a summary of what is provided to these folks, I would hope, in certain cases. They probably have key measures, key timelines, things that are actually prioritized, right? Because right now, mandate letters, as they present themselves, are a laundry list. Mm -hmm. We're trying to seek out your thing. If you're a stakeholder, they probably have a priority system. What's interconnected with what? And at the end of the day, as government, as a premier or the prime minister, you either give someone a script that's your mandate letter or a direction. That's your mandate letter. And you judge them based on that. If you trust, if there's a greater amount of trust, which is a lot of what this comes down to, you give them a greater amount of latitude. At the end of the day, though, any premier or prime minister recognizes that the political capital that they have is being spent by ministers, right, on these mandate letters. So if, if someone comes back three months later at, at a check-in, formal or informal and saying, you spent way too much of my fucking capital not getting enough of this list done. 
Like that's a problem, right? Whether that's because you didn't follow the script, whether you went off the the rails, you felt like you needed to explore here and see if there was a a key issue that was not in the mandate letter only to come back and say, you know what, everything is, I I don't need more of that shit, right? So there's, there's that ultimate element that we as a government, I as the first minister and premier are writing a story. You don't get to freelance an author unless I tell you, because you're just one fucking chapter of that story, right? Everything you do may not be directly interconnected, but it certainly is for the broader story that we are trying to tell to the public to get and secure fucking re-election in four years. And four years might seem so far out to you, but I'm writing a story for four years from Mm -hmm. now. Any competent first minister, any competent premier's office is always looking at that, saying this is chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and you just are on borrowed time writing and authoring and helping us author one of those chapters for us. And frankly, we would do it ourselves, but we can't um, with all the you know limitations to what the premier needs to do. So you're, you're, the, you're the, uh, the proxy for doing it. That's all you're on. You're on board time and you're on our capital. And I know that sounds harsh, but in many ways, that's how you keep these folks in line, give them enough latitude to do, to do the job, and then you assess them constantly. The one final thing I'll say is that all of this, all of this can be thrown out the window if public opinion uh, of you and your job and, and how you're doing it, and fr- frankly, in certain cases, and you fall out of favor with either the first minister or the public, those two things can wipe out any sort of performance review formally that you would ultimately get. So I think all of that's worthy of, of noting, but none of it is as important as do we even like Marco Mendocino anymore, for example, which is yeah. the conversation. Exactly why do we know? Well, well, kind of a bit of this and a bit of this. But if you look at the mandate letter, Marco's fucking nailing it, right? But the fact is, it just doesn't feel right anymore. All of that can override a performance um, that is totally logical uh, on a mandate letter basis. Okay, let's leave that one there. That's a good asterisk at the end that it can uh, it can all go out the window, guys. Let's move into our lightning round. Uh, Stampede is over. Do you do over. it for me? Do you? Because Zane does it. For I, me. I do, Carter. Yeah, I do it for you, Carter. The lightning we're doing round, the lightning round, Carter. We're for we're me? already over an hour, and we're doing the lightning round. Okay. Whatever. Oh yeah, it only sticks to an hour. That's great. I love we're, a host. Dude, we're having so much fun. We're over yeah. an hour. Corey's not here. We're doing it. Stampede, guys. Um, a lot of people went. It's over. You two were there. You were at some events. Just overall summary, how did it go? How did politicians do? Did you do you have any reflections or did you miss anything in your big uh, your big pre-stampede episode now that it has come and gone? Zane. I I forgot how boring politicians are. How <laughs> how how they're no, and I and I and I say this actually as a serious political point. When you're going out to stampede, know something about something other than um political speculation of what happens next in your political party or the issue of the day, like maybe be able to talk about something else. Because the problem with political events, as we know, around the summer barbecue season is that they're fucking redundant. You see the same same 200 people over and over again. And as a politician, you have to do that. But if you don't have any latitude to talk about things that people connect with or to break the ice or to actually show any sort of range of motion or interest, you actually look way more one-dimensional overseeing someone over multiple events than you do interesting despite the multiple interactions you've had with them. And I noticed that a few times, and, I, and I'm, I'm just pointing this out as politicians of You're gonna any name stripe names, or, or multiple, I'm definitely gonna, not going to name names. Um, I would have named but, names. Just yeah, of course you would have. Yeah, is, we know. I'm, I'm a guest here. I'm a guest here. And I'm classy like Shohei Carter, so I, I don't need to name names. Okay. Um, 
fucking no more shit. Okay. That's just that's just human shit. Like you're probably very smart. No more human shit. Don't be boring is what you're saying. Okay. Yeah, don't be boring. Carter, any any big stampede uh, summaries thoughts? No, I mean I think that it's always very interesting when the prime minister shows up and you know his popularity in Alberta's plummeting, so say the numbers, but prime minister shows up and you really get a sense of uh, how popular he is because he's surrounded by people. Um, you know, he, he spent, he spent the time he, he invested his time in Alberta and, uh, I was intrigued by how much time he spent here. I thought that it was, um, you know, it was good. I, I did, did Doug meet Singh show up? Did anybody see Singh? I don't think, no, that, I don't, I don't, I don't think we saw him. And, and I don't think so. I, I think he's still under his mandate to not show up. <laughs> um, I think that that blackout period still applies, Carter. Could be. I mean, it could be a thing. I don't know. Um, anyways, I, I I was impressed by the politicians. I didn't find them boring at all. Um, but then again, they came up to me and were like, uh, they're so, they love the strategists. They just love the they're strategists. Fusive. They're effusive. That's, that's <laughs> they're, true. They're and like, I, you know I don't what? respond this well is to the, that. And that Annalise, boy, she's got some kind of enthusiasm, doesn't she? That's what people <laughs> always were saying. Okay. She's so Next enthusiastic. Question. Oh, actually, it's power Next to that question. question. I like that one. The it's double down in the effect. Past. Yeah. Guys, Canadian news. Um, it's happened. I don't know if you searched anything on Google today. I did here in Canada. Canadian journalism didn't show up. The results were very um, American. Uh, other people took note of this as well, that this comes amid the Liberals Online News Act, which passed in June. Google has threatened and said that this would happen, and people were, were seeing it today. Literally, if you searched... Canadian wildfires, none of the results are Canadian journalism. Just, Zane, go ahead. If you Google Google Ryan Gosling, your screen goes pink. (laughs) I'm not even fucking joking. You do it right now. Yeah, it does. It's great. So uh, I don't I don't really care about the rest of it because my screen is now That's pink and there was nice little like Barbie themed sparklers, Carter. Uh, Carter, I'm not even joking. You do it right now. Carter's distracted. I can see right the now, light on his face. Oh my God. You can see it on your face. It's fantastic. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. But the question is, yeah, the question is like what next in this like ongoing now war essentially between the government and big tech? Go to fucking war. Go to DEFCON 1. This is fucking... The idea that a corporation can constrain and restrict our access to information like this is untenable. This is... If you want to do this, then we are going to go to fucking war. And and if you want to fight... Are we? Are we? Like, do people care? Uh, I I hope this government has this mind. Honestly, honestly, I I agree with Carter completely on this. Uh, I've talked about this in previous episodes with Carter and Corey. Uh, this the, Trudeau's most recent reframing around democratic countries have made these platforms successful, and now they want to skirt the rules of democracy. That's a very heady insider baseball sort of phrase, but the palatable public version of that, I fucking love. I actually think they have found the lane here finally, and I think they've okay, you know Zane, they've fill, been a bit lucky. fill me in on that that lane because I've been camping for a week. I've been out of cell service. Well, what is the what's I've the new lane? I've always I've always criticized this bill trying to do everything. Save journalism, create jobs, be morally righteous, battle big tech. I think they've now picked the lane to say we're going to use this as the tip of the spear to battle big tech. 
the journalism is almost a byproduct of that. Big tech has actually fucked around way too long, and we're not going to push back. And so, you know, what's at what's at stake right now is them not wanting to pay for news. But I think they've what they've done is they said this is this is our actual this is going to be our issue that we select to fight big tech right now, and they've gotten away with it for too long. Um, and I think this is exactly what the government needs to do. That they need to um, start acting. Like this is a political fight and not even acting. I think they need this to lead is it. A political this, is a poli- fight, yeah. this is a political fight that gives a government that has been lethargic, that has been arguably lazy, that has actually never closed the deal on so many files, but has been an expert at symbolism on them mm-hmm. to pick a fight, devote resources and win it. This to me is like finding a new purpose in 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 the late stages of a dwindling or at least lethargic government. You're not going to win the fight on cost of living. You're not going to win the fight on this emissions green versus this balance argument that you've been trying to. This to me, David versus Goliath, and where you could be pl- positioned as the underdog, I think is beautiful to go up against these behemoths that are now falling out of public favor significantly. There are spokespersons on the other side, and I don't mean official ones. I mean the leaders of these organizations, the Musks, the Zuckerbergs, uh, and less so the Googles in that sense, are not popular figures. You have a fight. Go fucking wean it. Le- lean into this would be my, my recommendation to them. What's next for journalism? I don't know. It really does depend on how how aggressively the liberals want to fight this fight. To me, it's a renewed purpose. It's on the table. It's in front of you. Go fucking do it. Carter, do you Damn agree? Right. Sing it, sister. Well, given that those were my talking points, um, I'm going to have to agree because Zane did what Zane does and he takes my talking points, he goes on the media and then he gets paid for saying my things that I said earlier on the podcast. So congratulations, Zane. I agree with me. (laughs) I agree with me. Last, who would you have cast as uh, Barbie instead of Margot Robbie? Actually, There's I think no she's one perfect. other than Margot Robbie. Question. Yeah, I think she's perfect. I think she's actually perfect. Yeah, that's I, good. While but, we're uh, while we're talking about big tech and um, Zuck and Musk threads, guys, there's been nearly two weeks of threads. Are you on it? And is it the new Twitter? No, I'm deleting all my social media in like the next couple of weeks. Stephen Carter, I'm on it. I can't figure it out, so it must be good. Uh, it's so, it's stalled. So is TikTok still number one for you, Carter? TikTok Your is still platform? there for me. Book talk. I'm all over book talk right now. Getting book recommendations. Sure. Loving it. Loving it. I can't read. That's why I use audible.com, Carter. We're okay. going to leave it there. That is the wrap on episode 1083 of The Strategist. My name no is... No wants to pick up on my literacy? Okay. With you, as always, Stephen Carter and Zane Belgi. Oh.